Thank you, Canute. Good evening, folks. Uh, let me just adjust this. Confession time. I have been in Canada since 1981, and I have been to Lethbridge um, precisely twice. Um, so, uh, with both embarrassment and humility, I uh, say thank you very much for uh, attending tonight's talk for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that I've just recently heard that Justin Bieber is performing at the Saddle Dome in Calgary, and you had a far better option tonight than coming to listen to me. Um, so we'll see how, uh, how much I'm on thin ice at the end of this presentation. Um, this is a fantastic lecture theater uh, of the sort that probably we only have two or three at the University of Calgary, so it's really a pleasure to speak in, uh, in this sort of setting as well, so uh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, I woke up in Calgary three days ago to uh, two inches of snow on the ground, so uh, it's also a pleasure to be in the balmy, tropical part of the uh, province again for the first time in many a blue moon. Um, I'll be speaking tonight as the, uh, the overhead, the, uh, the first slide on the PowerPoint presentation suggests, and as you already know about, uh, I don't want to call it a problem just yet, an issue which is very familiar to you. And uh, with respect, I'm guessing uh, for lots of people in this room who probably were born and raised in Canada, uh, an issue which you've known for long, far longer than I have. Just a little bit of background. Uh, I actually came to the study of violence in sport, which I've been involved in for some time now, completely accidentally, fortuitously, as an undergraduate student in the... Um, the 19, late 1970s, when I just happened to be an undergraduate student at the University uh, of Leicester in the Midlands of the UK, and totally fortuitously uh, started working on a project related to what you would call soccer hooliganism, what I would call football hooliganism, with the first organized group of scholars, sociological scholars anyway, who were doing research into this topic systematically at the time. Uh, and then came over to uh, Ontario in the 80s to McMaster University um, to conduct MA and a PhD uh, studies, uh, both of which ended up being in the area of mass communications and media studies more than um, uh, criminology per se. But if you bridge those three, criminology, media studies, and sport, it's easy, and especially violent study in sport, it's easy to see why it's been no real accident that I come to an interest in hockey violence over the last uh, decade or more. The way that I would like to proceed tonight is to, um, to talk about um, three periods of play, and I'll get to the, uh, the respective slide in a second that talks about the, uh, the breakdown of this presentation into uh, three periods, or three phases, so to speak. But uh, for anybody in the room who's familiar with the conventions, and particularly the male conventions of golf, I would like to get my excuses out at the first tee box. Uh, because our summer in Calgary has been so, excuse my French, crappy, I'm delighted to use this podium as a tea box here tonight and, uh, and talk about my excuses. Here's the first one. I'm, uh, I carry a Canadian passport, but I'm not really Canadian. I'm really a Brit. Uh, I've played ice hockey probably fewer than six times in my life, and trust me on this one, you would laugh your heads off if you saw me on skates. Um, I'm telling you that because I have friends and colleagues and acquaintances 
who I have met over the last 20 years or thereabouts, who are names um, which represent names familiar to you, people like Don Cherry, Kelly Rudy, Martin Gasoli, and other people, names that I'll mention tonight and even use to argue against tonight. Every single one of whom, at some point in their life, and often in front of 400 of my students, take the opportunity to tell me that I actually know nothing about the sport of hockey. What they're actually saying when they uh, make these claims is not that I don't know how to pass the puck or lace my skate, which in fact is literally true. What they're saying, uh, hopefully in jest, is that it's sometimes less compelling to listen to an argument made by somebody who doesn't sound like they really know what they're talking about on a given topic. On the topic of violence in hockey, I'm not claiming that if we played Trivial Pursuit that I would beat you. My purpose tonight is to try to place ice hockey and particular behavioral components of the game within a cultural um, climate, within an environment where I encourage you to step back as Canadians from the game that you love and you live and you breathe and possibly have problems with and consider some of the problems within the game or at least issues which have been identified as problems uh, for some time at this point. So, um, in a sense, uh, I don't really have excuses per se so much as want to address the stereotypical thinking that sometimes goes into, is the relevance, that sometimes goes into being able to speak on a given issue. Specifically, don't be bamboozled by the fact that my voice and my accent gives away the game. And obviously, I didn't grow up playing pond hockey in flin-flon. I've known about the game of hockey for some time. I do know how to lace up a skate, but I really am a very bad skater. That tells you that I know something about this sport from a participant's point of view. But from a participant's point of view, none of you in this room participated in World War I or the Boer War but I bet many of you know something about those environments. In other words, outside of being a direct participant in social phenomena, my opening claim is that it's possible to know them from a distance, at the very least. Thank you. Um, I think I was going to make the case that if
against sport. And uh, this is an argument that I make at the front end of all of my sociology of sport classes because passionate supporters of sport sometimes become overly protectionist and defensive about sport and don't like to hear critical things about sport. It's important to me that you understand that even though I'm about to say critical things about the sport of ice hockey, I'm actually for sport, I'm for ice hockey, and I have to confess, I'm for the physicality in hockey in a number of different ways as well. But there is a difference in my mind between supporting a sport that is innately and intrinsically physically challenging and risky and supporting certain elements of the sport, including fist fighting. I'll make that distinction more clearly as I continue. I finally have to out myself as one of three sociologists who Don Cherry referred to uh, on Hockey Night in Canada as a left-wing pinko in the 1990s. I'm one of the original left-wing pinkos. Uh, Don Cherry referred to uh, Phil James and I as left-wing pinkos because we wrote an article, provocative article, called uh, The Prime Minister of Saturday Night in which we took Don Cherry and the CBC to task for, in a publicly funded environment, supporting positions which we found to be racist and overly conservative and overly traditional and perhaps risky to young people. I haven't mentioned yet the gendering of ice hockey, but it goes without saying that any sociology worth a salt can't stand here for 50 minutes and not mention the gendering of hockey, and the gendering of hockey will be a theme that comes out tonight too. The last point on the overhead that you can look at uh, on the PowerPoint presentation reads eschewing the photographic evidence. And the reason that I deliberately included this on the, uh, the slide is because you'll find that as I proceed, there's precisely one photograph that I've chosen to use. It would be so easy for me not to use the sorts of quotes and text.
Thanks. Thank you. Sorry. The term, the term on the, uh, the overhead, sorry, Tom and Jerry violence, relates to the way in which, when it takes place, not just in ice hockey, but in a cluster of different sports, the behavior tends to be rationalized away as ritualistic. Ritualistic tends to refer to less threatening than it could otherwise be. It tends to suggest that bench-clearing brawls or one-on-one -on -one fights take place in the name of ritual and nobody gets hurt. It is most certainly the case that people get hurt, and we know far more in 2010 than we did in, at the turn of the millennium or in 1990 about the levels and the extents of violence related to uh, ice hockey fighting at a number of levels of the game. The phrase Tom and Jerry derives from something that everybody in the room is aware of, and that's the Saturday morning cartoon, which images either Tom and Jerry doing violence to one another, or a better example would be Wile E. Coyote in The Roadrunner being bullied off the face of a cliff only to fall a million miles down with an anvil to fall on his head to be squashed concertina-like and then to spring up and do it all over again as though no pain was ever suffered. It's almost as though in the world of ice hockey violence, this is what takes place. If you were to listen to Don Cherry and to believe it, it's almost as though this is what happens to men and increasingly women when they check one another, or in the case of the men's game, fight with one another. That there's no real violence, no real harm, no knuckle, no hand, no orbital, no eye injuries. Nobody becomes paraplegic, quadriplegic, or beyond. Keep in mind, please, that what we're talking about here in the case of fist fighting takes place outside of the rules, but inside of the culture of the game. That's what separates fist fighting in hockey from almost anything else that we can talk about in the sociology of sports violence. Most of the on-field problems take place in the context of the rules or the laws of the game. Fist fighting is not included in this. Fist fighting takes place in the culture of the game, and it's very championed and lauded, but it doesn't take place within the rules of the game. It's excused away and has been by the, uh, the law of the land, uh, the Canadian courts, as ritualistic and not particularly threatening. The second theme that you tend to find over the course of the last century at this point of case law is that voluntary assumption of risk or the notion of voluntary assumption of risk is also at the belly of the sorts of cases which are are heard by the Canadian courts or the conversations that take place in communities like yours and mine. What I mean by this is that when you hurt me in the context of hockey or vice versa, it's excused away or rationalized away on the grounds that we voluntarily assume some level of risk done by each other and also to one another. I'll look at some case law uh, as time goes by. I'm also, by the way, just as an aside, going to keep one eye on the clock because I already see that we started a little bit late, but it's already gone 20 past 7, and I'll try and limit my comments to 50 minutes maximum tonight uh, for reasons of uh, discussion, which is much more important than the presentation itself. 5-0. Yeah, not 15. Otherwise, we need to start asking questions right now. Um, so... What I'm suggesting at the front end is that if you look at the way in which the Canadian courts have dealt with violent cases related to hockey 
over the last century or so, they tend to be explained and they tend to revolve around two central themes. One is the notion of ritualism and the assumption that not very much physical harm is done by or to one another. And two, that even if it is, well, what could you and should you expect, reasonably expect, in the context of a sport which is clearly physically brutal? Whether or not, and the Calgary, sorry, the Lethbridge Herald misquoted me this morning, whether or not it's excessively brutal is a matter of subjective debate. It's a matter of objective knowledge that we know that fist fighting exists outside of the rules of the sport. So, in phase one, what I'm trying to do is to encourage you to think about what is risky in the sport of ice hockey and what's unreasonably risky in the sport of ice hockey. Let me give you a couple of examples. If I were to say to you, for the car racing fans in the audience, that in 2010 we should have vehicles that are basically rocket ships on wheels that travel at 250 miles an hour, but if they crash, the person inside is almost certainly dead, would you accept it? My gut feeling is that you would probably have misgivings about this uh, conundrum. But in the past, it's been the case. And it's led to the deaths of numerous racing car drivers, including the Brazilian Ayrton Senna, who over a decade ago was killed before reformations and changes were made to Formula One car races because it was too unreasonably risky. In the same way, in any sport that you can think of, and please think of your sport right now, there would be examples of risks that you assume any time that there is a puck, any time that there is a ball, any time that you exchange physicality against an object or a clock, there is a risk. Everybody has a cutoff line, and organizations and institutions have cutoff lines. What I'm suggesting at the front end is that the law of the land has had its own cutoff line and its own gray area in dealing with violence related to ice hockey. Complicating the scenario even further is the way in which some of the major stakeholders in the game, including Don Cherry, who I want to talk about in a couple of minutes' time, have been extremely outspoken in defending aspects of the game which may be, in the end, counterproductive. I want to make the case as somebody, not a friend, but I want to make the case uh, about somebody, Don Cherry, who I've met several times and have a certain amount of respect for, especially as he ages and becomes longer and longer in the tooth on CBC and in sport more generally, who has made the case that... Fist fighting should exist in the sport, and the critics of fist fighting in the sport should evaporate. He's made this argument over and over and over again, and look at this uh, small sea of faces here this evening. I think that you've all heard this and seen this before. Don Cherry has argued, for instance, uh, in what I call the NHL theory of violence, that fighting discourages violence. He's argued that violence is hitting a guy headfirst into the boards or taking your stick and smashing him in the face. To me, fighting is not violence. Fighting stops the violence. Now, we have to accept this on face value. And at the very least, we have to consider the catharsis argument. It's based on the notion of catharsis, that if one vents or purges violence or physicality, the, so the argument runs, one will be less involved in aggression, 
tomorrow or next week or the week after. And the argument that critics have against this is that there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that this is true. Scientifically, catharsis has been discredited right across the, um, the hard and the softer human sciences because it doesn't work like this. Even though when you play a game of squash, you feel exhausted at the end of it, it doesn't mean that you don't want to hit the, the heck out of a, a squash ball again the next day or the following week. And the same argument, as eerie and perverse as it sounds, might be applied to cases of interpersonal violence inside and outside of sport. In a far more sobering context, specifically in cases of domestic violence, it's become very clear and has been clear for a very long time that as one hits, one becomes a better hitter. As one hits, you learn how to hit better and you learn how to hit more strategically and you learn all of the excuses involved in it in order to become immune from sanction. Sport is no different. I don't buy the NHL theory of violence. I don't think there's very much evidence to suggest that catharsis works in the way in which Don Cherry and others suggest, and I actually think that it's dangerous. We have less time than I wanted to look at some early aspects of case law, but let's look at one or two and then we'll jump through to the 1960s and 1990s. This is actually from um, a prize fight or uh, a fight, a street fight, waged around um, making money and gambling, which eventually made it to the Canadian courts. And the justice in the case argued the following about the activities that took place. I wish to make it clear that I'm as much opposed to prize fighting and brutality and intentional injury in boxing, football, hockey, or lacrosse as any person can be. At the same time, I feel confident that it will be a long time before Parliament will think it wise to so hedge in young men and boys by legislation that all sports that are rough and strenuous or even dangerous must be given up. Virility in young men would soon be lessened and self-reliant manliness become a thing of the past. In that quote that comes not from some sociological jabberwash that I've invented in my own sort of subjective thinking, but from the case law, almost a century old at this point, what's being attended to are matters of manliness, gender, authentic and legitimate sport, social institutions, how the law defends violence when it takes place, etc., 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 Virility would be a thing of the past. Self-reliant manliness would be a thing of the past. Now, we've come a long way since 1911, but it's still the case that one of the reasons, one of the explanations for violence in all of our sports that's provided on a regular basis, it's boys just doing what boys do. My argument would be, is it the same with domestic violence? Is it acceptable? Do you find it just as acceptable with domestic violence that it's boys doing what boys just do? I think that you probably don't, but relative to sport, we tend to make exceptions as though sport is a world apart. The sport of the parallel with the sport of boxing is interesting given some of the earlier comments that I made because I started out by making the case that one of the reasons that uh, violence in ice hockey has been excused by the courts for a century or so at this point is based on the notion of ritualism. And these are ritualistic elements taking place in the sport that really don't threaten. Well, I think it's probably the case that most people in this room conceive of boxing and ice hockey in different ways. 
I know that Rodney Dangerfield once quipped that he went to a fight and he saw a hockey game br- br- break out. You're all aware of that famous gag. But I don't think that you would agree that boxing and ice hockey are quite the same thing. But there are more parallels and overlaps than perhaps you would like to think. In the eyes, rightly or wrongly, of the law of the land, it is the case that judges and justices across the last century in Canada have seen Valentine non-fit injuria, voluntary assumption of risk at the very belly of the complaints that people make against one another when they're harmed in a fistfight or hit with a stick. In boxing, it's the very intent of you to overcome your opponent, me, in disabling me so I can't continue. If, you, if you're successful and you disable me, could I take you to court on the grounds that you've disabled me? I'm sorry, Your Honor, but I've made a call, I've, um, I'm making a claim for GBH, grievous bodily harm, because my boxing competitor physically harmed me in the sport of boxing. I don't think that you would buy that, because the essence of the game is to disable. It's not the essence of ice hockey to disable. It's my understanding that it's the essence of ice hockey to score a goal. One of the ways of getting there is to disable. So there are all sorts of differences and complications in the excuses and the rationalizations that we make, and these will come out in some of the quotes that I'll show you in a while. Just very quickly, I'm going to skip over this. Uh, Please trust me when I make the case that if we um, moved quickly through to the 1960s and even through to the cases of Martin McSorley at the turn of the millennium, Todd Bertuzzi in 2004 and Alexander Perezogin in 2004, you would find exactly the same sorts of explanations offered to excuse the behavior by the law of the land. In some respects, these explanations are actually extraordinary. All of them, every single one of them, are based either on the notion of ritual or the notion of consent. You will never find, it is my contention, a piece of case law around fist fighting in Canada that doesn't either touch on ritual or consent as its essence. So rightly or wrongly, these are the, uh, the ways in which um, ice hockey cases have been dealt with um, in Canada. This is the only photograph I'll show you tonight, and it's, I've got goosebumps as I speak to you tonight because I didn't find out until three or four days ago that, um, that this chap actually died earlier on in the summertime. Uh, at least one person in the audience knows what this story is about and uh, already can uh, anticipate what I'm going to tell you. I don't mean to be histrionic when I tell you that uh, in my 50s now, uh, with two grown-up kids and knowing something about the sport of ice hockey and hockey more generally, having played rough-and-tumble sports like soccer and rugby on both sides of the Atlantic, growing up in a working-class community, and not being particularly green, despite all of the above, uh, outside of watching my team, Liverpool Football Club, lose on a regular basis, I've cried three times in sport. All of them have been connected to deaths or catastrophe. Two of them I'll leave aside that connected to the deaths of fans of my football club, one of which was a hooligan-related incident and one was just a stampede crush. And as I watched the scenes live on television in both of these cases, it left me absolutely nauseous and numb. 
The third is when living in the United Kingdom, actually, at the turn of the millennium in 2000 and 2001, I was invited to be testimonial counsel on a case which involved uh, an ice hockey player by the name of Ian Strathen. Ian Strathen, at the age of 16 in the 1990s, lived in the Niagara Falls, St. Catharines area. He had played on uh, his high school ice hockey team in a high school tournament. It was a weekend-long tournament, and Ian, as the star skater on the team, had been required to play more shifts than his peers on the team. He had complained to his coach and his other uh, teammates, excuse me, that he had repeatedly felt sick and had to go to the bathroom over and over and over again, felt lightheaded and fatigued and felt like he was going to collapse. His coach repeatedly put him on lines because he was the star player and one of the captains. Eventually, Ian found himself in a situation where he collided completely innocuously within the rules of the game at center ice with an opponent, fell to his knees and slid on all fours into the boards and snapped his cervical spine and lived the rest of his life as a quadriplegic. On the basis of the Don Cherry theory of violence, on the basis of the quotes that we will see in a few minutes' time or the explanations that we'll see in a few minutes' time that represent defense, defenses for, comfortable explanations for physicality in ice hockey, one would think one would have to say to Ian Stratham, not only was this not a fist fight, but you voluntarily assumed a certain level of risk in your sport. And as awful as this is, sorry, mate, you will be a quadriplegic for the rest of your life, but it's really nobody's fault. But I pose to you the following quandaries, uh, and I think I hinted at these before. We consent in all of our sports to do certain things, but there are others that we don't consent to. In ice hockey, specifically, we consent to check and to be checked. We consent to hit and be hit. We consent to be part of an accident. We consent to score a goal. We consent to be uh, involved in a team which is organized responsibly, and we consent to play on the basis that there will be adequate medical attention for us if something goes wrong, and we consent to play in tournaments which are sanctioned and recognized by recognized bodies. To cut to the chase for reasons of time, what I can tell you is that Ian Stratham played in a tournament that was not fully sanctioned by a hockey organization, did not have a fully qualified medical um, um, person on the, uh, the bench for a coach who repeatedly put him onto the ice even though he complained and didn't want to want to skate and under circumstances in a rink which was antiquated, outdated and subsequently considered dangerous. At the end of the day, a group of Queen Street lawyers defending all of the above could not fully save the principal, the school, um, the coach, the rink, the hockey association, or the city of St. Catharines from some percentage of negligence done to the quadriplegic Ian Strathen. I met Ian Strathen at his parents' house in 2001 and after about 45 minutes had to leave the room because I felt so guilty that I'd been so privileged in the world of sport that um, it was difficult to listen to somebody telling me through... Um, a Christopher Reeve-like ventilator, ventilator apparatus that he would kill himself if he had the physical ability to do so. 
um, completely eerily and with goosebumps, I tell you that in my research around the web over the last week or so, I discovered completely accidentally that Ian died earlier this year. Let's be realistic. It's unrealistic to assume that the world of ice hockey is filled with Ian Strathans, and nobody is making the case that it is. It's unrealistic to make the claim that one should not voluntarily assume some level of risk in rough-and-tumble sports. The question is, and I pose this not with a particular black-and-white answer in mind, what is your level of reasonable risk in the sports that you play, your kids, and your grandkids want to play? And at the very least, one thing I know uh, for sure is whether you agree or not, Canadian attitudes towards reasonable risk is, uh, are changing, and changing relatively quickly. I don't have time to go through this, but this uh, slide basically hints at the way in which, even though there are increases over the last two or three decades, four decades now at this point, going back to the 1960s, there are changes in the way in which uh, increases and changes in the way in which the law is increasingly intervening into our sports, not just ice hockey, but other sports too. It's still the case that the law of the land is a very gray area when it comes to prosecuting these cases. So while charges may be on the increase, prosecutions are, first of all, extremely difficult to quantify and measure, and second, difficult to tell whether or not they're keeping in symmetrical uh, um, parallel, so to speak, mirror image with the increase in the number of charges. They're probably not. The reason for this is probably uh, connected to the elements of this table. First of all, sports uh, and athletics are not seen to house real criminals, rightly or wrongly. Cities like Edmonton, Lethbridge, Calgary are concerned with uh, youth gangs, and people involved in crime A or crime B, and we tend not to see the perpetrators of violence in sports as quote-unquote real criminals. We tend to think that sport can responsibly police itself. We tend to think that if sports violence does make it to court, that it's probably more fair that it makes it to tort law or civil law rather than criminal law. We tend to think that, and I agree with this completely, that if we're going to fine and charge and suspend and prosecute individual athletes that we probably need to open Pandora's box a little bit further and look at the coaches and others connected to the behavior of the player. I'll talk about Todd Bertuzzi and Mark Crawford in a few minutes' time. It's certainly the case that Canadians have very unclear definitions of not only what sports violence is. Think about it, folks. What is sports violence? If I asked you pedagogically, I don't mean to patronize you, but if I said to you, write an essay right now on sports violence, every one of you would write a different essay. We'd all define it in quite different ways. And it's also the case that, and this is really my point, that sports violence connected to hockey is defined differently. It's probably best interpreted in terms of elements of physicality that we want and elements of physicality that we don't want. But that's clumsy language, and that's why it's not been used. It's also the case that guilty verdicts are almost impossible to, to reach, and any sociologist worth her salt again would tell you that this is just a criminalizing sports violence doesn't really make it go away. In fact, criminalizing anything, I'm sorry to say, doesn't really make it go away. It needs to be added to with more thoughtful and more wide-ranging measures within the community. The points that I've just made are not new, 
they go back at least to the 1980s and to the 1970s. But there are some changes. Um, the cases, the sorts of cases that you can see in case law over the last couple of decades show very, very um, uh, comfortably that there have been, for instance, shifts in public tolerance towards levels of violence in all aspects of life, including our sports. Sport, for sure, is one of the last bastions of acceptable and legitimate violence, but it's still the case that even in sport, Canadians accept violence less and less uh, in most respects. There are exceptions. One of the fastest growing sports on this continent is mixed martial arts, and it's tough to make the case that this is not violent. Um, it's also the case when number two is concerned that whether it's with the police, university professors, doctors, or lawyers, that strictly in-house policing doesn't really work very well. There's no compelling evidence that when a group is allowed to police itself, that it polices itself completely objectively and fairly and with full accountability and transparency. It tends to hide its problems. And this is exactly what sport has done. Sport is no longer immune. The police, rightly or wrongly, are intervening. And it's also the case, as we saw around the Todd Bertuzzi episode, that coaches, parents, schools, rinks, boards, um, medical staff are increasingly, rightly or wrongly, being brought in to cases of liability because they're being seen as negligent in contributing to the problem. Todd Bertuzzi, who subsequently became a Calgary Flame, as you uh, now know, when he played in 2004 for Vancouver, pummeled an opposing player, as you uh, all know, in the form of um, Steve Moore in a way that it's actually difficult even in these days of the internet to see the like of uh, on the web. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible act that afterwards was responded to in a series of ways which give the game away. Uh, we'll see the themes in this give the game away uh, uh, notion in a few minutes' time, but at least one of them was came out of the mouth of Brian Burke, who is a quite famous and recognized face in the world of ice hockey now, of course, representing the Toronto Maple Leafs, who argued that Steve Moore was actually exaggerating his injury, as though that could ever have taken place. The point that I'm making here is that not at first, but subsequently, after far more reflection, and I imagine legal counsel, Todd Bertuzzi came full circle from denying what he had done denying responsibility, denying victim, through to teary-eyed acknowledgement of victim and teary-eyed acknowledgement of irresponsibility, through to blaming his coach, blaming his coach for the negligence that he had shown in encouraging him to play a particular role. You'll find this more and more in, in Canadian case law. There are new policies, there is a newer form of policing, and there are precedents in law that any sociologist, once again, would probably argue that policing and criminalization in and of itself is insufficient. It needs to be added to by other things um, in order to really do something with the problem. Now, in the remainder of the presentation, 
most of which we won't get to because I didn't realize Knud and, uh, and his colleague indicated to me that these things are not particularly visible from a distance. I do apologize. What I do in the second period of the game, so to speak, and I'm just going to leap through this, is to look at the sorts of, uh, using three cases in particular, Marty McSorley, uh, Todd Bertuzzi, and Alexander Perezogin, all cases of um, on-ice violence that led to criminal trials, all of which led to community intervention, but no full prosecutions. They all led to um, probation. All of these sorts of cases, as with the cases I've demonstrated for you previously, tend to be understood in terms of the following four themes. I had hoped to have time tonight to, to talk more about these themes, but let me just give you the themes without the quotes associated with them, and then if anybody wants to tackle them in, a, in the question period, we can come back to them. The four sorts of themes that you tend to find emerge at times of um, uh, legal intervention are as follows. The first one I want to call established definitions of violence. And this basically relates to the Don Cherry theory of violence and NHL theories of violence. We tend to find that established rationales are used, which include arguing that there was no intent, that it was an accident or a mis mistake, the players consent to levels of brutality used against them, and that episodes take place uh, atypically in the heat of the moment. We find that any challenges from outsiders, especially one with English accents, they tend to be met with disdain from insiders in the game. Kelly Rudy routinely jokes in my classes, for instance, in front of 400 students that I can't possibly know what I'm talking about because I sound funny. Canadians do this a lot when it comes to uh, uh, ice hockey and the protections towards the game. It's easy to find excuses as to why we shouldn't take complainants seriously. Often techniques of neutralization are sought out which deny the injury, deny responsibility, and to deny the victim. Once again, in the Todd Bertuzzi case, it was the case that in the first couple of months of the Bertuzzi episode, that Brian Burke and other people for uh, various clubs made the case that Steve Moore may well have been exaggerating the extent of his injury, even though, even though he had serious concussive damage, facial damage, and cervical damage. And the conventional responses tend to be, okay, well, let's modify the rules. You don't need to modify the rules where fist fighting are concerned because it's not embodied within the rules anyway. Don Cherry would say, we'll get rid of the instigator rule. But it's not really the case, and it's not really the case that modifying the instigator rule one way or the other would do a hapeth of difference where fist fighting is concerned because it's so protected and rewarded within the sport. There are several ways in which the league, in this case the NHL, and other hockey associations maintain control over violent activities. They tend to draw in the entire community using nouns and pronouns like we and our, as though when in times of need, the community is uh, collective in its thinking of and support around uh, fist fighting in, in uh, ice hockey and violence more generally. It's clearly not. It's divided. And there are lots of different views about whether or not these things are right or wrong. 
Ice hockey violence tends to be framed in terms of the code and different styles of play and tends to be deflected away in terms of on-ice incidents, which again are atypical. The code is something that we need to spend at least 30 seconds with because this is a phrase, a euphemism, which refers to the way in which there is a certain kind of understanding in ice hockey that everybody knows what role you have to play. It is the case that coaches, when people make the case that my coach didn't make me do it, my coach didn't tell me to go and chase him or hit him, coaches don't need to tell you to go and hit him because you know before the game starts what your role is. And anybody who's ever played a rough-and-tumble sport will know that this is the case. You wouldn't be there in the first place if somebody had to tap you on the shoulder and say explicitly, literally, can you please go and chase number 11 if you're over there 25 meters away? This is not what takes place in sport. But it's an easy argument for deflecting responsibility. It's interesting that during these moments that hockey greats, Wayne Gretzky is a case in point, when he was alive, Maurice the Rocket Richard used to make the same sorts of case, are brought in to excuse the behavior of um, some of the uh, uh, modern-day athletes and to circle the wagons. Ironic that Maurice Richard would ever have been used for this purpose, given his propensity for violence in the 1950s and 60s. There's never been a more violent player in ice hockey than Maurice Richard. He just happened to be good as well. And finally, as with all social